Lord, huh? It's good to see so many of you here this morning. I see the word didn't get out. How many of you are surprised that Jonathan's not here today? We kept the that's good. We kept the secret. Jonathan is very, very ill and um, sends his regrets. I was in Columbia, South Carolina yesterday afternoon at about 4 o'clock when I got a text from Jonathan wanting to know if I could possibly preach for him today. And I thought about it. It was about thousand degrees where I was sitting in that stadium yesterday, and I thought if hell is any hotter than this, I better do anything I can on behalf of Jesus to avoid hell. So I texted back, absolutely, and I got ready to leave and come back and prepare as soon as the game was over and the post-game tailgate, and the barbecue dinner at Maurice's after the game, and, uh, and all of that. So I asked Jonathan what his text was for, the, for today, and he said it was uh, about Paul. And Paul, you know, wrote that I have had much, and I have had little, and I have learned to be content in all circumstances. And I texted back, that'll be perfect, because you know, I was born in Porterdale, Georgia. I'm a lint head, and I was born in a four-room mill village house. We didn't have a bathroom in our house until I was in the fifth grade. I got five now, so I could preach on that, six count in the back porch. And he, <laughs> he said, oh, may, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you shouldn't preach on that. Maybe you should leave that for me to preach. I said, well... I'll talk about the time Jesus did battle with Satan in the wilderness. It's been 2,000 years, folks still talking about it. He was tempted. I'll talk about all the temptations people are facing today. Sex and lust and drugs and alcohol. He, he, well, maybe, uh, maybe you might not want to do that. And I said, well, I preached at my church last week, and I preached about the, the servant that uh, was forgiven 10,000 talents by his master, and then he wouldn't even forgive uh, one to 100 denarii. And, and Jesus said he was going to send us all to hell if we didn't forgive. And Jonathan, maybe, he, he, he said, um, you know, I'm feeling better. Uh, <laughs> maybe, I, and then all of a sudden, um, his wife came on the phone and said, Jonathan had to go back to the bathroom. I, he'll be. Then Jonathan came back on and said, maybe you should not teach preach on anything that you've read or heard. Maybe you should just preach on what you know firsthand that you've experienced. Would you please come and give your testimony today? And uh, so I said, okay, I'll do that. I'll give my testimony. So, so that's what I'm, I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to give my testimony to you today. My, my son, Jackson Lee, uh, is good friends with Jonathan. In fact, Jonathan and I performed Jackson's wedding three, two years ago, three years ago. And um, Jackson watches y'all on the Internet. Uh, 
I didn't know y'all on the internet. And he says, you're a fun congregation. So I can't wait to see what y'all are going to do when I'm, while I'm preaching. It's so much fun. But, but uh, it's a great, great morning. But would you pray with me? Eternal God, you are the creator of the universe. You are the author of life, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. You have blessed us so richly. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this brand new day that we've never seen before and the opportunity for us to use this day in any way we see fit. And now in this precious time that we have together to celebrate you, to sing praises to your holy name, to give thanks for all that you've given unto us, and now to hear your word spoken through your humble servant, please keep us still, O Lord. Please remove all of me and may the words of your, may your holy words be spoken through my mouth and may the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. May we empty ourselves of our problems and our cares and our worries and may we listen for your still, small voice speaking to us. And may we carry the message we receive into the mission field, into the world, and share the light of Jesus Christ with all we encounter. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I was, as I said, born and raised in Porterdale, Georgia, a small mill village in Newton County, not far from here. Uh, and when I was about 10, 11, 12 years old, I got the call to preach. It wasn't just a, an inkling. It wasn't just a consideration. It wasn't just, you know, there were a lot of career options. Maybe I would like to be a preacher. It was a clear, loud voice, not a soft, gentle voice. I knew that God wanted me to be a preacher. I knew that he wanted me to preach the gospel. I had the gift, the spiritual gift of discernment. I enjoyed church. I understood the gospel message. I understood his word. I had a, a gift for interpreting his word and for speaking. And I knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God wanted me to be a preacher. God had also given me free will. God had also given me a stubborn personality. And I said no to that calling. Throughout my life, people have said to me, after they've heard me preach, well, you really missed your calling. Y'all, I did not miss my calling. I just said flat no to it. I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to coach high school basketball. I went to the grand and glorious University of Georgia, hallowed be thy name, on a, on a basketball scholarship. 
I was the manager. The Southeastern Conference hasn't changed that much in 35, 40 years. Uh, and I was preparing to teach and coach. But when I was a senior in high school, I knew that that was not what I was meant to do. So in my senior year, I went to Candler School of Theology in Atlanta, and I enrolled in seminary. I went through, jumped through all the hoops. I did all the things that you're supposed to do. And there I was. I had accepted a job back in my hometown at Cousins Middle School, teaching life science to seventh graders, coaching football and basketball, but I had also enrolled in the seminary so I could answer that call because I knew that's what God wanted me to do. And I felt so relieved when I made that decision because I knew that I was being obedient to God. And then the first day came when I was supposed to report to my classes and I got cold feet and I just didn't go. I don't mean I called them and said, I have decided to defer my enrollment for a while. I just didn't show up. I mean, there were three professors at three different classes that day who were calling the roll and got to my name and just did not get an answer. I just didn't show up. So I went throughout my life and... I enjoyed teaching and coaching. I did it for 38 years. I had a very um, successful teaching career. I enjoyed it. I had a successful coaching career. I think I, I did a lot of good teaching and coaching. I met my lovely wife, Lisa. We were married. We have three wonderful children, three wonderful um, uh, two. I don't know how you say that? Children-in-laws. <laughs> we have two. We have two sons-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Although she did go to Georgia Tech, so <laughs> we love her anyway. And I, um, I did other things because teachers don't make a whole lot of money in Georgia. I owned a photography business for a, a long time. I started writing a newspaper column and syndicated in a lot of papers. You might see it in the Henry County paper from time to time if you uh, live here in Henry County and look at their weekly paper. I was on a radio show, What the Huck, on the Moby in the Morning Network. Uh, I've written many, many books. Uh, I always did a lot of things, and I was a good guy. I, you know, did all the things you're not supposed to do if you're a Christian. I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I was a good guy, I went to church, I did everything you could do in the church. I was a Sunday school superintendent, the lay leader, taught Sunday school classes. Um, I still had a gift for speaking and I would do corporate functions all over the country. I traveled everywhere uh, making people laugh, big corporations, but I also spoke at Sunday school gatherings and church gatherings and I was doing everything that you're supposed to do if you're a good Christian. None of those things is what God called me to do. 
He didn't speak to me when I was 12 years old and say, Daryl, I want you to uh, entertain people, be a good guy, teach Sunday school, be an administrator in the church. He wanted me to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I just said, no, I'm not going to do that. I did not want to turn my life over to his will. So no matter how good a Christian I was, no matter that I was saved, no matter that I was doing his works, I was living a life out of obedience to Jesus Christ. In 2011, in the spring, I, well, actually in 2010, in the fall, I started having health problems. And we went to doctor after doctor after doctor. And when I say we, my lovely wife Lisa and I, you know, when you're in a marriage, it's a partnership. You don't have to do anything alone. You always have a we. We went to doctors, all kinds of doctors, and they couldn't figure out exactly what was wrong. My liver numbers were not good. My kidney numbers were not good. I, I just felt bad all the time. They couldn't figure it out. They decided they'd take my gallbladder out. They can't figure out what else to do. They'd just take your gallbladder out, you know. That didn't do any good. But I was supposed to, it was 13th of May, and I was supposed to have a physical, my annual physical. And I said, well, I'm not going to go because we've been to 10 doctors in the last four months, and they've tested my blood. And Lisa said, no, you've got to go. We'll go get your physical. It's... And, and so I did. And when I, I had my physical, and actually I was in the office, doctor's office at the hospital prepping for my gallbladder removal. And I got a call from my doctor on my cell phone. And you, it was after hours. You don't want to get a, doc, a phone call from your per, doctor on his personal cell phone. That's not, never a good thing. He wasn't inviting me fishing. He he said, well, we got your blood work back, and uh, I'm pretty sure that you have cancer. Thank you, doctor. I'm headed out for the Labor Day, Memorial Day weekend. That's good news. Give me something to think about while I'm on vacation. Uh, and he said, you need to come Monday and get a biopsy. So Monday we went to the urologist, and uh, any of y'all ever had a, a prostate cancer biopsy? I tell you what, I'm not going to be political today. I'm not. <laughs> but if I were in charge of Guantanamo Bay, we could shut that down because I would give every suspected terrorist a prostate cancer biopsy. <laughs> they tell us everything they knew within the first 30 seconds. They put you up on a table... And they got this big silver instrument, and they put it where nothing was ever intended to be put. And they stand in the corner, and they tell you to relax. I want to tell that woman, you get up here on your hands and knees, and let me tell you to relax and shoot that. And they start shooting needles in you and taking pieces of your body out of it. And it's, well, they came back, and uh, the, you know, a couple of days later we came back, and they said, well... I've got some more bad news for you. I said, well, good. The more the merrier, you know. And they said, well, you've got 
prostate cancer in all four quadrants, and uh, the Gleason score is 10 out of a possible 10, and uh, it's the, as bad as it can be. And uh, well, you're right, you do have more bad news for you, for me. And they said, we're going to have to take out your prostate, and the sooner the better. And I said, well, okay, the sooner the better. And he said, I said, well, let's do it. And he said, well, the biopsy tears up your prostate so much that you have to wait about 12 weeks before we can do the surgery. Your body has to heal. So he's telling me on one end, I've got to do it as soon as possible, but as soon as possible is 12 weeks. And he says, and we can't do it the new robotic way because yours is so bad that we have to do it the uh, old-fashioned way, open surgery. And that's kind of like operating blindfolded in the bottom of an orange juice can. So uh, I'm not sure it's going to work. He was just full of good news. So I left there kind of down in the mouth. And I have a friend, Carter Rogers, who's a doctor. And it's actually Jonathan's uh, uncle. And Jonathan's uncle Carter got me an appointment with a guy in Atlanta that's supposed to be the number one guy at robotic prostate surgery, Scott Miller. Now, you don't want to have, I've never heard anybody brag, I've got the 12th best doctor in Atlanta. You know, you want to have the number one guy. I went to this guy, and Lisa and I went back to talk to him. He said, no problem. I can take that thing out robotically. Like, we can do it. No problem. And uh, so he set the schedule. This was in July. So we set the schedule for August 6th. And uh, he said, now, I've got to warn you. Y'all, please don't tell Jonathan I said this in church. But he said, you won't be able to perform sexually for about eight months. I said, oh, I don't perform now. We do all that in private. <laughs> he said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You won't be able to have sex for about eight months. My wife said, I'll pay you double if you make it 20. <laughs> so, on August 6th, he took the prostate out. And it was supposed to be a two-hour robotic surgery. It took 10. It was a lot worse than he thought. But he, he came in and said, this is great news. You can write this down. Uh, this is the day that you're cancer-free. We, we got it all. I think your margins are clean. Yeah, you can clap for that. It wasn't accurate, but you can clap for that. He um, called me back about three days on his, later on his cell phone at night and, and said, this is, this is Scott Miller. And he says, uh, we, we did, he said, but, you know, he said, but we've got to do a PSA to make sure. He called me back and said, we did a PSA and, and um, the PSA didn't go down like it's supposed to. So we're going to wait a, about a week and do another PSA. And so a week later, he did another PSA. That's prostate-specific androgens. It's, it's, it's got to go down to zero if the prostate cancer is gone. He did another PSA, and he called me back, and he said, well, Mr. Huckabee, I'm sorry. I was so tired of hearing doctors tell me they were sorry. 
and he said your 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 PSA has doubled in the last week. The the, the cancer has escaped the prostate already, but it's a microscopic type of cancer. It's real aggressive and real serious, and we don't know where it is. So we're going to have to do some radiation to try to kill it all. And I said, so we're going to do some radiation. He said, yes, we're going to do some radiation. Now, I don't know where he did his radiation, because he never was where I was doing mine. But um, I did 210 radiation treatments over a period of 40 days. They had to do five treatments every time I went because they didn't know where it was. So we did five in five places. That was interesting, too. I went to the radiation clinic. They were wonderful, except there were four young ladies. And I had taught three of them in school. That was, that's never a good thing. And, and we walked in, and they said, well, lay up on that table, and um, we're going to start the proceedings. And I said, okay. And I just sat there and waited for them to leave. And, and they said, well, just get undressed and lay up on that table. And I said, okay. They didn't leave. And I said, well, aren't you going to leave? They said, no, we're professionals. We've seen it all before. They hadn't seen all mine before. <laughs> I said, well, don't you have a towel? They gave me a little cocktail napkin. Surely you got something bigger than this. That's bigger than so Anyway, I got up there, and they started doing tattoos. On, I said, what are you doing now? They said, tattoos. I said, I want a mermaid. They, <laughs> they gave me tattoos so every day for 40 days, five radiation treatments. That didn't make you feel good. But at the end of the 40 days, I got to ring this little bell because I was through my radiation and then they did another PSA test, and, and the doctor came in, this, this other doctor came in, and she, uh, she was in tears. She said, Mr. Huckabee, I'm sorry to tell you your PSA went way up during your radiation treatment. I just don't know what else to do. <laughs> you, you don't want to hear your doctor say you don't know what else to do either. But... I'm going to speed it along here because all the funny parts are gone. But uh, we went, we started seeking out other doctors. And uh, we went to Emory, and we went to Northside, and we went down to Jacksonville to the Mayo Clinic. Basically, all of the doctors in Atlanta said, there's just really nothing else we can do for you. Uh, your cancer is a very, very aggressive kind of cancer. Um, it has metastasized. The cancer is in your bones. We have in your rib cage and your, your hips. Uh, you've got bad kidney numbers. You've got bad liver numbers. You've got arthritis in, in your knees and your hips. It's just uh, the prognosis is not good. And I love the way they put it. They said the expiration date for most people in your predicament is four to six months, like a carton of milk. And um, this is where I really, really, really hit a low place in my life. Now, I've been a Christian uh, all my life, and I knew that I was saved. I knew that I was going to go to heaven. 
but I was kind of like the little boy in my Sunday school class. I asked my Sunday school class one day, how many of y'all want to go to heaven? And everybody raised their hand except one little boy. And I said, Jimmy, you don't want to go to heaven when you die? He said, oh, yeah, when I die, I thought you was getting up a load to go right now. <laughs> and that's the way I was from February until April in 2012. Uh, I was just at the low point in my life. I had three children that were in their early 20s. Um, Two of them hadn't graduated from college. None of them were married. Um, I had had to retire from teaching because of uh, my health. Uh, I had a beautiful young wife. And my life, they were telling me, these were educated medical professionals in three states, were telling me that, in four to six months, my life was going to be over. And I was just distraught. I didn't know how to face that. I wasn't prepared to face death, even though as a Christian, I'd known all my life I was going to face death. And I would go to bed at night, and I would lay in bed, and I couldn't even pray. I couldn't even find the words to pray. But you know, the Bible tells us that if we can't pray in words, the Holy Spirit will, spend, will send a, a language for us to pray. I communicated with God in moans and groans. But I, my parents had taken me to Sunday school at Julia Porter United Memorial Church every Sunday of my life. There was never a choice of whether we were going to go to Sunday school or church or not. We just got up and went. And I had great Sunday school teachers. And I had learned so many prayers and so many scriptures. And I developed a litany. Every night I would go to, to bed and I would lay there and I would start repeating the scriptures that I memorized. I got to where I could do that. I would say the affirmation of faith to myself every night to remind me of what I believed. I would start out with that. Every night I would lay there to remind myself that I believed this. So it's important to learn those things, to know them. And it's important to teach your young people those things. People tell me, I'm not going to take my children to church. They can decide for themselves when they're older. Those people need to learn something about raising children. I said the Lord's Prayer over and over and over at night. I went back to now I lay me down to sleep. And when I got to that part, if I die before I wake, I prayed fervently that 
I pray the Lord my soul to take. And some nights I prayed that I would die before I wake because waking up with Jesus seemed preferable to facing what I seemed to be facing right then. But the most important thing, the most comforting thing that I prayed was the 23rd Psalm. And I prayed it from memory. But every night at the end of my liturgy of prayers and responses and moans and groans, this gave me more comfort than anything else when I prayed and reminded myself, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, I allowed myself to go through this for about six weeks. And then I was able to get an appointment at M.D. Anderson in Houston, Texas. And on the 1st of April in 2012, Lisa and I drove out to Houston. We went through all the battery of tests there. We met with my doctor, and they said exactly the same thing we had heard at Emory and Northside and other places. They said, well, you've got this rare form of super aggressive metastatic prostate disease. It's moving so fast, it's taken over your body. There's very little that we know that can be done. But then they said, but. But, that one little word, but. But we're willing to try this new experimental treatment. And if it doesn't work, we will try this treatment. And then we'll try this treatment. And as long as you want to come out here, we'll keep trying different treatments. And they gave me treatments that very day. And they said, now this is probably not going to work, but they'll want us to give you this treatment to prove it doesn't work before we start on some of the more newer experimental treatments. So they gave me the treatment, told us to come back in so many weeks, and, and we went home and we came back. And they said, now don't be disappointed when this hasn't worked. We've got something else already lined up that we'll start today. They did the blood work. They came back in that afternoon. The doctor had an amazed look on his face. He said, I'm not a man of faith, but, 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 I have no explanation. Your liver numbers are good. Your kidney numbers are good. The, the, the PSA has gone down to zero, non-detectable. Your cancer has not spread. Um, we'll just keep doing this every 90 days. And that was April, May, June. That was the 1st of July in 2012. Last week, 
we went back to MD Anderson. I've been going there every 90 days, basically, since 2012. This is 2018. And they said, well, we don't have any medical explanation for this, but your liver's good, your kidney's good, the cancer's still in your bones, but it hasn't spread, so we'll just keep doing this. The longest anybody had lived on that treatment, he told us when he started it, was eight years and two months, and I'm on six years and four months. Praise God Almighty. I know I'm just a little bit over, but I started a little bit late, too, so I just want to point that out. Now, I want to tell you, when I was little, I was in Porterdale, you know, and we didn't, we didn't have much. It was a mill village, and I was being honest when I said we didn't have a bathroom in the house, but we had the run of that village. When I got to college, my sociology professor found out that I was raised in a mill village, and he announced to the class... Mr. Huckabee was raised in poverty in a North Georgia mill village. My professor was obviously educated far beyond his intelligence. <laughs> we weren't poor in Porterdale. We just didn't have any money. There's a big difference, let me tell you, that we had everything we needed in Porterdale. I had a mama and daddy that loved me. Uh, they loved me enough to hug me when I needed a hug, and they loved me enough to go send me, go send me to go cut a switch when I needed that. Uh, we had the run of that village. Us kids could be out the front door as soon as it got daylight. We didn't have to be home till the streetlights came on or till my mama called me for supper. And she'd call me, Daryl, supper! And, you know, if I was having a good time, I'd pretend I didn't hear her. I wouldn't answer her. And that's when she'd use my middle name. You know, I believe God gave Southerners a middle name for when they got in trouble. She'd say, Daryl Lee. When you heard that middle name, she meant business. Daryl Lee Huckabee, you better be coming. And I'd stand at the back door, and she would, any of y'all ever got that look from your mama? She'd look you in the eye and she'd say, boy, didn't you hear me calling you? Yes, ma'am. I'd look down at my shoes. She'd say, why didn't you answer? There was nothing to say. She'd say, go cut me a switch. Well, when I was going through that hard time, laying in bed, couldn't think of what to pray, I was thinking one thing. I was thinking, you know, four months I'm going to be dead and I'm going to meet Jesus face to face. We all are. I'm going to tell you that right now. That's an appointment we all have. The funny thing is, do you know anybody that's um, an atheist or an agnostic? You know what's funny? They're going to meet Jesus face to face too. They really are. And I'm going to meet. I'm thinking I'm going to meet Jesus face to face. And all I remember is my mama calling me to dinner, me not coming, and I said he's going to look me right in the eye, and he's going to say, boy, didn't you hear me calling you to preach? And I was going to have to say, yes, sir. And he's going to say, why didn't you answer me? What was I going to say? I was having too much fun doing what I was doing. I was afraid you might put me 
doing something I didn't want to do. So I promised God during that time. Now, I didn't make a deal with God. Understand that. I, I did not. I did not say, God, if you'll heal me. I never said that. But I said, God, I don't know how much time I've got left. But starting right now, whatever time I got left, I am going to preach the gospel to anybody that'll listen to me. And I did. I didn't wait till I got better. I started then going to any church that would listen to me talking about my illness and my faith that everything was going to be okay, whether it was going to be okay in heaven or on earth. Um, well, I have been spared now for these six years. I still have cancer. I still have to have the treatments. But listen to this. I went back to school. I went to preaching school. I got certified as a lay speaker. I'm not ordained in the United Methodist Church, but I'm anointed by God Almighty. I have been invited to preach over the last six years in 327 churches. God, and I have never said no. And that's when Jonathan texted me, and I was in Columbia, South Carolina. I was happy to come and preach to you people. It's an honor. And um, it's been amazing, the response. i got to tell you this story. I know you want to beat the Baptist to supper, but <laughs> three years ago, I was in Bethesda, Israel. And I was preaching uh, by the pool to the group that I had taken over, about 50 of us. But there were other tour groups, and they all stopped and gathered. And pretty soon there's a big crowd listening to me preach about healing because Bethesda is where the pools were. The, 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 the crippled man had to wait for, for the waters to be stirred up so they could lower him in, and I was preaching about healing. And um, everybody gathered to listen to the servants. Now, we get home 10 days later. I'm not going to tell you how I got there, but 10 days later, I was preaching in a honky-tonk in Clarksdale, Mississippi. A honky-tonk. And we invited the community. And there was a guy that was sitting there that just was staring at me unlike most people, you know, he was just, I, and after the service, he came up to me in a very, very strange voice, uh, um, accent, and, and he said, well, now I've heard you speak, preach twice, and I said, well, where's the first time? He said, two weeks ago in Bethesda, I'm a tour guide in Israel, and I heard you preach, and I was touring the south and I saw the poster that you were here tonight I had to come back and hear you preach now I do not know what that means but God's involved if somebody hears me in Israel preach and then 10 days later hears me in Clarksdale Mississippi there's something going on there God is faithful and he has me here for a reason 
Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up and boil it down. And all I want to say is two things. I don't know what battles you are facing. I do not know. I do not know. It may be health-related. It may be emotional. It may be financial. It may be a family matter. But I do know this. There is no problem too big that you and God together cannot handle it. I know that for a fact. If you will give yourselves over in obedience to God, if you will turn it over to God, if you will live your lives in obedience to God, He is faithful to keep His promises. And having said that, I want to say this. His answer won't always be the answer that you're looking for. Because I have lots of people, friends, close friends, who struggle with cancer, and God's answer to them hasn't been the same as mine. I have a lot of people that have not been physically healed, that we started our battles at the same time, that they're with Jesus now. So do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not promising you pie in the sky. I'm not saying that just because you ask, the answer is going to be your answer. But I know that I am at peace now. And I was not at peace. When I was stricken, when I was laying in bed, all of those sleepless nights, I was tormented. Tormented like I've never been before. Not because I had cancer and thought I was going to die, but because I knew I was living outside of God's obedience. And then as soon as I gave myself over to God's calling and knew that I was living in obedience to God, I found the perfect peace that passes all understanding. And if I died this moment, I would die in his presence perfect peace, and I mean that with all my heart. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much for allowing me to come and share my testimony and uh, tell Emily and Jonathan that I didn't embarrass him too much, and maybe he'll let me come back and preach one of those sermons I was telling you about next time. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, sir.